0: Well, good morning. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I am one of those people that sets New Year's resolutions, a few of them. Um, how many of you guys do that? How many of you have decided that this year I will not raise my hand for questions they ask from the stage? Um, <laughs> The, the thing about it is that, uh, you know, we look at that, a new year, a new you, all those kind of ideas, that it, every now and then we use it. It's almost artificial, you know, mark that says, let's start now doing something that I know I should have been doing all along. Um, but the idea is we either start something or we stop something. And before you decide to stop anything, just remember that nobody likes a quitter, um, and the whole thing about resolutions is that it's in one year and out the other. You, you kind of know where I'm going with this, right? I just thought that I would share with you a few of my resolutions so you would be able to, those of you who didn't have any, you can just copy these and use these, or you might use them to inspire your own, um, but uh, I thought I would just show, uh, share a couple, so My first resolution was just simply to start the year off by going to church on day one. So let's put a check mark on that one. Done. Number two, I am going to endeavor to stop using 2022. Put it on checks or anything like that. Number three, I want to influence at least three people this year. And so I have committed to uh, tomorrow to bring a box of donuts to work to mess up three people's resolutions. Um, Number four, I am going to stop eating chocolate. I'm going to stop thinking about chocolate. I'm going to even remove it from my vocabulary. I don't know how many would get that. That's a brand of chocolate, Cadbury. So finally... Um, And you guys can join with me on this one, I think this is my my favorite, but uh, I have resolved to read more this next year, so I'm going to be turning on the subtitles on my TV. (laughs) So you're welcome to join with me, we can kind of encourage each other as we go through those, but... uh, Happy New Year, um, and regardless of what you set resolutions or not, um, today we're going to give you one out of scripture that just simply is a reminder that the spirit of the, of the living God is constantly with us, guiding us every step of the way, and we don't have to have a list of all the to-dos, of all the things that we're supposed to be doing, that we actually have a living God who's with us. That should be our number one reminder. But let's jump into this passage here. There's a lot that's happening. We're not going to be able to cover all of it, but we're going to take this kind of large general view very clearly. Verse 1 out of chapter 8 says, now concerning food offered to idols. So this concept, when we look at this, Paul is simply responding. We've talked about it before that there's already been some correspondence, some communication between Corinth and Paul. So we, most scholars believe that, that the Corinthians had written to Paul with a list of questions and to clarify theology, what was happening in the world, how they should see certain things. So they they bring up this question about food that's offered to idols. And so Paul, at the beginning of chapter 8, stops and says, Now concerning this food offered to idols, this question that you asked, and we get a little picture of what they asked by how he answers it. But I want to start right off the bat kind of speaking to this question about food offered idols because that's a, that's not something we do these days. It's not, there's, there's not the same kind of situation where we even have idols that we see as False gods, as gods that are other gods than the one true god, there's not a temple that we can go to that we would sacrifice to, to food to those idols. But in this day in Corinth, that was going on. There were temples to other gods, and you would go and bring animals and would literally sacrifice the animals in offering to these other gods. And by doing that they would end up if a lot of people brought all this this food, this meat there It would become the number one butcher shop in town. It would be the place where you could buy meat cheaply and expensively. And in many of the cases, the temples had tables actually in the temples. You can see this in in archaeology today, that they can go through many of these cities and they will find the, the pillars. They'll find it and they'll determine this is a temple. And there will be a low reclining table that literally is designed for people to come and eat some of the food that was there so that the food wouldn't be wasted, the food was available. So it's this concept that as you read this passage, you hear about eating food that's offered to idols, you might go and use that as your meat market, as your butcher shop, a place that you might buy your meat, or you might actually go and eat some of the meat that was there. That was if you were a believer and didn't believe that there were other gods, because then that food wasn't really defiled. But if you were someone who had just most recently been offering food to idols, then this would become a challenge for you if you saw other Christians who were going and eating that food and you're looking at it like, why are they doing that? This is this is something that has some kind of sacredness to me, or they may be tempted to go back to the temple that God is literally calling them away from. So that's the whole concept, and I think most of us get and understand that. But as we jump into this, we just want to clarify what's being said there. There, we could talk much, much more about that, but that's just this concept. Now, concerning food offered to idols, Paul says, and then he doesn't talk about food concerning, (laughs) or um, food offered to idols. This is fascinating about Paul. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, listen to what he talks about. We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He didn't say anything about food. He didn't say anything about gods. He didn't say anything about idols. But he starts talking about knowledge right there. And in fact, this idea of knowledge shows up a little bit more than the, than the word idols or the idea of the food offered idols. It literally is this concept that he's saying it's about what you know and what you don't know. That what the Corinthians had done is they had said to Paul, hey, wait a minute, there's people here that because they don't fully understand the freedom that we now have in Christ, they're telling us that we shouldn't be eating food offered to idols. Can you please tell them that we're free in Christ and tell them to get over it? This idea is that their knowledge of what they knew about their freedom in Christ should set them free and should set the others free. So, Paul, would you please reprimand these that are more weak in the faith? That's the concept. And so it's a push on knowledge. And Paul's answer now matters when we think about it this way. Because then he turns and he says, this knowledge, meaning the knowledge you have, puffs up but love builds up. In other words, just because you know about the freedom in Christ isn't something that should then use that knowledge as a weapon against others, but rather that love would build up the others. And then in verse two, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. How many of you know that? Yeah, this is a circular reasoning, right? Yeah, I know that. I've learned that to be true. And it says, no, if you say you know, then you don't know yet as you ought to know. Yeah, I know that. Oh, man, that means I don't know yet. Oh, yeah, I know that. I know I don't know yet. We could go on like that all day. Paul does it just once. And he reminds us that when we claim that we know everything and we know how things are supposed to be laid out, Paul stops and goes, you don't know everything. So when you hold this knowledge over somebody else and say, I know more than them, he's saying, you don't know what you ought to know. So don't be putting something, somebody else down because they don't know certain things. So this issue of of knowledge is that you do know enough about this, and now he begins to come back and to to use it and apply it back in. Therefore, verse 4, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. That, That this is something we know, that there are no other gods. And because of that, that knowledge says, yeah, we do know that, and that changes things. This thing about food offered to idols is a cultural thing in that day, not so much today, but we have other things. And I know that I am just old enough and I was raised in a conservative home to where many of the things that I was raised with were things that the rest of the world thought were okay and you could do. So, for example, in my home, you couldn't dance. There was no dancing. I'm not making that up as a joke. It was the way I was raised. You couldn't dance. So I'm going to teach you my one dance move right now. This is what I know. I almost had him play music so you could see the rhythm and be able to, because you almost miss it. But Eugenie, she will vouch for me that that when music comes on and when we start dancing as a family now, my family laughs at me because I have no moves. I have no rhythm. It's almost like sin to me. And it's hard for my body to do that. You couldn't drink. There was never any alcohol in my home. Maybe some rubbing alcohol. And you could drink water, so I want to be clear. But there was like, you couldn't drink alcohol. That was just like, that was something you didn't do. There was no profanity. And even the idea of playing cards and things like that. And the the idea of, of even going shopping on Sunday. And I think we've all seen the error of that. You know, places like Chick-fil-A, when you want the chicken and it's not even open. It's just like... <laughs> culture has moved on. Am I treading dangerously here? Sorry. Um, The reality is, is there's value for each of those in a cultural setting that actually makes sense. It's not that the rule has to be followed all the way to its point. But if this is the way you dance, that's probably not bad dancing. And I'm not going to show you what bad dancing looks like. The concept, though, that there might be sensual, highly sexualized dancing, you can see that somewhere between this and that, we've crossed over into sin. Somewhere between having a glass of wine with your dinner and getting drunk, we've crossed over into sin. Somewhere between playing cards with some friends and just laughing and having great times together and gambling away the livelihood of a family, we've crossed over into sin. Somewhere between this point of eating meat offered to idols and tripping up somebody else who literally believes in idols, we have crossed over into sin. That this idea of culturally being aware of what others might be facing rather than looking at it just through our perspective of how we might have been raised, of how we see the world. And that's the concept that Paul is talking about here. The line is different for different people. And we have to recognize that the line that we might be living with, walking with the Lord, what the Lord is, is putting on our conscience might be different for somebody else. And that's what Paul is talking about. So when he, uh, they say, hey, we know this, that it's okay for us. Could you just tell them to get over it? Paul says, hey, we do know this. We know all kinds of things. In fact, that knowledge stuff, it shows up in verse 1. It shows up in verse 2 and 3 and 4 and 7 and 10 and 11 and in chapter 9 as well. But it puffs up. The what you know puffs up. And you don't know as you ought to know. Let's take a look at verse 7. In verse 7, it says, However, not all possess this knowledge that you have. Not everybody knows what you know. And so, because they see the world differently, they're not the same as you. Paul stops, and with that word, however, he spins it around and he says, However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former with, association with idols, eat food as if it's really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now I want you to know that, that this idea that there are some that are different than us is an important thing. When Eugenia and I lived in Seattle, I worked for Seattle's Union Gospel Mission It had a lot of different ministries, but one of them was literally homeless shelters, that we would bring people in off the street who were struggling with addictions. And we would get to know some of them. Some of them would go into recovery programs. They'd be with us for for about a year in the recovery program. Many of them would give their life to Christ, but they still had a part of their old life that was pulling on them and that was tugging on them, that they were struggling with things and knew in their faith and they were still struggling with their addiction. So we can imagine really clearly that if I'm going out to lunch with them, the idea of me drinking alcohol and going, hey, I know you're not drinking right now, but do you mind if I drink? That that concept is one that we, we really wouldn't have a hard time with, right? We would just go, no, we get that. We get that, that you're weaker in your conscience, that your journey is different than mine. And because your journey is different than mine, then therefore I'm going to treat this differently, And that's what Paul is saying when he says, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as it's really offered to an idol. This concept isn't so much about idols, it's how we treat everybody all the time. The clear logic is there are no gods, therefore there are no real idols And therefore, the food itself is not going to condemn you. We know this. And it says, yeah, but even if you know this, there are others that don't fully get this. And verse 9, I believe, is the crux of this passage where Paul says, but take care. And the implication is you, but you take care. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That if there's anything you get out of this entire message, if you write anything in your journal, if you remember anything, if there's something that you were to grab as a resolution, it would be this verse right here. That you would take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block for, to the weak. The, I, I almost came in uh, this today with a, a bunch of boxes tied to my waist. And I was going to come in from the back, just dragging all these boxes across the stage and just come in. And, and on the boxes, I would tell you about all the rights that are mine. That as American, I have a lot of rights. And here they are. I have a right to this. I have a right to that. I have a right to so many different things. And I would bring all those rights in and the worship team on their way out would stumble over them. And I was going to have them trip and fall and just be in a big pile right there. Um, I left the boxes out in the rain. They're all soaked. So we didn't do that part. But here's the point. The, The point of it is we do this in life. We bring our rights. We as Americans especially celebrate the freedoms and the rights we have. We fight for the rights of other countries even. It's an important thing for us that we know our rights and we protect our rights. Paul is going down a different road here. And he's saying, you don't lose your rights, but you might choose to leave your rights in the back room when the worship team is going off. Now... To be fair, technically, that implies that the worship team are the weak. They're weak in their conscience. That's what the passage says, that you don't want to be a stumbling block to the weak. And that's another good reason why I didn't do it. But here's the point. We have these things. We have boxes. We have things. But ultimately, and I'm going to apologize to the, the cameraman right now, but ultimately, it's not those little boxes that trip people up. When we have the rights and we exercise those rights, the thing that becomes the stumbling block is us. We become the thing they trip over because we go, I have my rights. I deserve certain things. And by golly, I'm doing what I want to do. And it doesn't matter that you trip over me on your way to Christ. I have my rights and I understand Christ better than you do. You're just confused. That's the concept. When we read this verse and it says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Take care that these rights of yours, that you don't become a stumbling block to the weak. That we have an opportunity to say, all right, I don't want to do this. I want to do this different." What I want you to do now is just go back a couple verses to verse six, because there's a really cool thing that happens with the text and with the language in six, and, and I don't want to race over it, as he's talking about that there's only one God and there aren't all these idols, they don't really exist, even though the world says that there are many gods and many lords, in verse six it says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So if you're not catching that, it sounds as if he's almost saying the exact same thing. There's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Now, I'm going to give you a little visual picture. And if you've got a journal, you can almost draw this. But if you drew a circle and put a little dot in it, and then had an arrow that was going out this way, that this idea, the first circle would be God himself. So when it stops and says, yet there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. You start from that center little dot, and you go out then from there. All things come from him, from the Father. And then it says... Uh, so there is one God, the father from whom, um, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom. So then draw a second circle, the little dot. And that line goes through that and it continues out. So all things are from God through Jesus and out from there. So we know this to be true, that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And even for us to have a relationship with God, it's back through Jesus. So this little simple diagram of here's God, here's Jesus, and that it comes from the father through the son. And then there's us. And then there's the weak. There's the others that have former associations that that picture then stops and says, do I let the gospel flow through me or do I become the stumbling block? Does literally the gospel stop with me because I'm gathering up all the rights that I've been given through Christ and I hang on to them so tight that I actually become the problem that the gospel doesn't go beyond that. This picture that Paul is laying out as he's saying, it's important that you understand that from the Father through the Son, you now become part of that conduit, that this, this gospel message should flow through you as well. That you not become a stumbling block because you're hanging on all to all your rights. Yes, you have rights. But by hanging on to them, you could actually become the stumbling block. In this verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The word take care literally is the Greek word blepo, and it means to see. See to it. Notice that this idea, beware, is sometimes used this way. But this idea is that look and, and be noticing, watching, that you don't become the stumbling block. See that you would see those around you and you would notice what they were doing. You would notice where their life might be so that the, the, the gospel might flow through you rather than stop with you, that somebody would stumble over you. So I have to tell you that I'm not always good at that. I'm not always good at noticing the needs of others, noticing the challenges with others. So one time in Seattle, I am... Um, We've got a bunch of us, guys from the program, gals from the program, and we are going to a public broadcasting station because we would sometimes just help people realize that it feels good to serve in other capacities to serve other people. So we would look for volunteer opportunities to serve in the community. So one particular year, we get this opportunity to go do a telethon fundraiser for PBS, the local public broadcasting station. And they had um, the, I can't dance, but the dancing girls with the, you know, the Irish girls, what do they call that? Um, What is that? Cloggers? Yeah, Riverdance, that's the one. Yeah, so that's the show. And in between, they would cut off from Riverdance and they would have—they say, we want to raise funds. And we manned the phones and we answered the phones for them and would write down people's information and collect the donations for PBS. So we're doing this for, for like four or five hours and we get a break halfway through that they let us go outside and just stretch our legs. While I'm with a bunch of guys and gals that are coming out of recovery, they still smoke, another thing you couldn't do in my house. There were those kind of things. It wasn't sin, but it was the thing that my family you didn't do. These individuals, because of their former association, it was, it was an addiction. It was a habit. It's something they, they continued to do, not necessarily wrong. And we didn't tell them, you got to stop everything wrong you're doing or you can't be part of the program. So if they would stop doing heroin, we would let them have their cigarettes. You kind of follow the logic. Well, we go out for them to smoke, that kind of a thing, and in the the process, we had been in this break room, and I have to tell you right now what I'm about to refer to, I do not try this at home, but it's just going to be illustrative of the whole concept, that there is a common household item that is flammable, and I don't want you to try to figure out what it is. For the sake of this story, we're just going to say that it's coffee creamer, powdered coffee creamer. The powdered coffee creamer is flammable. Let's just use it as an illustration. But we had seen it in the break room. And so I told some of the guys, have you guys seen how this, this burns? And they were like, coffee creamer doesn't burn. And I'm like, oh, yes, it does. So during our break, they've got their lighters for smoking. And I've got a big container of coffee creamer. And we go out in the parking lot. And I got to tell you how I know this first, because I don't want you to think bad thoughts about me. When I used to work at Hume, the camp up in the, the mountains, one night I'm working with the high school campers, making sure they're all up in their cabins and they're where they're supposed to be. And it's 1130, 12 o'clock at night, it's all dark. And I look off in the distance and there's a huge ball of flame. And I'm like, what is that? And I go running over there. And it's gone. There's nothing burning. I don't see anything. And I'm like, would it? That's crazy. And then off on this side, I see another ball of flame. And I go running over there. But this time, I see campers scattering and running in different directions. So I chase some of the campers. And they go running into a particular cabin. I follow them into the cabin. I snap on the light. And everybody's in their bunks sleeping. I'm like, not a chance, guys. I just followed you in here. I need to know what you were burning and what that is. I want it all on the floor now. And they're like, what, what? And i like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. Put it out there right now or you're all doing KP in the morning. And so all of a sudden, this stuff comes out. Lighters, coffee creamer gets thrown on the floor. And I'm like, no, I'm not buying that. Coffee creamer does not burn. And they're like, yeah, it does. And then I'm like, well, show me. And so now they throw back their sleeping bags. They're fully dressed with their shoes on. <laughs> and they come out and well, we'll show you. And so we go out in front of the cabin and they pour some coffee creamer into their hands. And they've all got handfuls of coffee creamer. One kid holds a lighter and they start throwing the creamer into the fire. As it does, it bursts into flame. And they're doing this, this huge ball of flame that's just dancing in the middle of the air. And I'm going, give me all of that. And I take all of it. I confiscate everything. And I tell them, you're going to have KP anyway. And then I take all this stuff. And I go back to the lodge where the rest of the staff are. And I say, guys, come outside. you got to see this. (laughs) And we go and we start the ball of flame going again. And I'm like, this is really cool. Why didn't my parents ever teach me this? This is good stuff. So I am there now in Seattle with all of these individuals that work with a mission. We're out in the parking lot and I fill their hands with coffee creamer. I get one of them to hold the lighter and we start to feed the creamer into the fire and it makes this huge ball of flame. And then all of a sudden they all take off running in every direction. And I'm the only one standing there. And I'm like, what? What is this? What's going on? And one of the guys who's hiding behind the edge of the building, he's going, Jeff, get over here. Get over here. And I'm like, what? What is going on? And he's like, oh, you don't even know it, do you? And I'm like, what? And he goes, we have all had arrest records. We all have had felonies. We all have things that are previous associations in life that if we were caught with fire or something like that, that could mean we go to prison. Some of these guys have got two strikes. If they get a third strike, they may go to prison for a long, long time. And at that moment, I realized my lack of sensitivity that I'm living in my freedom of I've never been arrested for anything, that I could do almost anything and I could probably talk the cop out of it. Probably depends if you murder somebody, maybe you shouldn't talk the cop out of it. You know, there's, but you get the idea that when we live with this freedom in Christ, we don't feel the weight that others feel. But when others have an association that is an association, that's baggage, that is their life, the trick is for us to take care that we don't allow these rights to become a stumbling block to others. That we don't live in our freedom, just carefree, but instead we take on this burden and understand that with that, there's a lot more happening here. Paul goes on to say in, verse, in chapter 9, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? That Paul goes on to talk about who he is, and then he starts bringing up issues we tend to go back to those issues and try to make rules about them, like, like we would with dancing or cards or drinking. We look at what Paul says and we stack up the theology around it and go, what is Paul saying about marriage? What is Paul saying about working? What is Paul saying about drinking? He has this list. This is my defense in verse 3 to those who would examine me examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles? And then he talks about working and about whether he has chosen to continue to work rather than getting paid for ministry. And by the way, we're not going to go deep into this concept in the passage, but I just want to simply say, I love this church. I love the fact that so many of you are faithful in giving, and in the process, it allows us to pay staff to literally be able to do ministry all the time without having to have a second job to do that. The reality is, is that all of you are involved in ministry as well, and you are far more like Paul, where you do your work and do ministry. That's the concept that Paul is saying. He's saying, I would rather continue to work so that no one would have anything against me and that by that, the gospel would be free of charge and to go that route. That's what's happening here. Paul goes on to say this again and again. I want you to just look at a couple of these where he says in verse one of nine, am I not free? And yet, in verse uh, 12, he says, Nevertheless, even though I am free, in in verse 12 of chapter 9, Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Or verse 12, um, I think I just read verse 12, verse 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. That even though I have these rights, am I not free and I have these rights? Paul stops and says, but I haven't taken use of these. So when we look at this, there's, there's an illustration that I just want to read to you. That is an example of somebody who just simply stops and says, I am going to give up my rights, the things that are right to me and do me. So I want to read to you a story. It'll explain itself. Special Forces, um, that's Green Berets, Special Forces Master Sergeant Roy Benavidez was the son of a Texas sharecropper. Orphaned at a young age, quiet and mistaken as slow, derided as a dumb Mexican by his classmates, he left school in the eighth grade to work in the cotton fields. He joined the Army at 19. On his first tour in Vietnam in 1964, he stepped on a landmine. Army doctors thought the wound would be permanently crippling. It wasn't. He recovered and became a Green Beret. During his second combat tour in the early morning of May 2, 1968, in Lough Vietnam, Sergeant Benavidez monitored by radio a 12-man reconnaissance patrol. Three Green Berets, which were Americans, friends of his, and nine Montagnard, Montagnard uh, tribesmen, had been dropped in the dense jungle west of Lough just inside of Cambodia. No man aboard the low-flying helicopters beating noisily toward the landing zone that morning could have been unaware of how dangerous the assignment was. Considered an enemy sanctuary, the area was known to be vigilantly patrolled by a sizable force of the North Vietnamese army intent on keeping it so. Once on the ground, the 12 men were almost immediately engaged by the enemy, and they were soon surrounded by a force that grew to a battalion. A battalion is anywhere between 300 to 800 men. These 12 guys are surrounded by 300 to 800 enemy soldiers. The mission had been a mistake. And three helicopters were ordered to evacuate the besieged patrol. Fierce small arms and anti-aircraft fire, wounding several crew members, forced the helicopters to return to base. They came back. Listening on the radio, Roy heard one of his friends scream, get us out of here. And there was so much shooting, it sounded like a popcorn machine. So he jumped into one of the returning helicopters and volunteered for a second evacuation attempt. When he arrived at the scene, he found that none of the patrol had made it to the landing zone. Four were already dead, including the team leader, and the other eight were wounded and unable to move. So carrying a knife and a medic bag, Roy made the sign of the cross, leapt from the helicopter hovering 10 feet off the ground, and ran 70 yards to his injured comrades. Before he reached them, he was shot in the leg, the face, and the head. He got up, and he kept moving. When he reached their position, he armed himself with an enemy rifle and began to treat the wounded, repositioning them, distributing ammunition and calling in airstrikes. He threw smoke grenades to indicate their location and ordered the helicopter pilot to come in close to pick up the wounded. He dragged four of the wounded aboard, and then, while under intense fire and returning fire with his captured weapon, he ran alongside the helicopter as it flew just a few feet off the ground towards the others. He got the rest of the wounded aboard as well as the dead, except for the fallen team leader, and as he raced to retrieve his body and the classified documents the dead man had carried, he was shot in the stomach and grenade fragments cut into his back. Before he could make his way back to the helicopter, the pilot was fatally wounded and the aircraft crashed upside down. He helped the wounded escape the burning wreckage and organized them in a defensive perimeter. He called for airstrikes and fire from circling gunships to suppress the ever-increasing enemy fire enough to allow another evacuation attempt. And critically wounded, Benavidez moved constantly along the perimeter, bringing water and ammunition to the defenders, treating their wounds, encouraging them to hold on while they waited for the helicopters. He sustained several more gunshot wounds, but he continued to fight for six hours. When another extraction helicopter landed, he helped the wounded toward it one and two at a time. On his second trip, an enemy soldier ran up behind him, struck him with his rifle butt. Roy turned to close with a man in his bayonet and fought him, hand to hand, to the death. Wounded again, he recovered the rest of his comrades. As the last were lifted onto the helicopter, he exchanged more gunfire with the enemy, killing two more Vietnamese soldiers, and then he ran back to collect the classified documents before at last climbing aboard and collapsing into the helicopter, apparently dead. The army doctor back at Lough Ninh thought him dead, Bleeding profusely, his intestines spilling from his stomach wounds. Completely immobile and unable to speak, Roy was placed into a body bag. As the doctor began to pull up the black shroud zipper, Roy spit in his face. Roy went on to live and to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's an incredible story and not one that you're likely to have to do. But I want you to understand that when we read something that says, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, we're not talking about dying here. We're not talking about what Roy did was to simply, he was back home. He wasn't sent out on this assignment. It wasn't his obligation. He had the right to be safe. And he sacrificed those rights for another. He laid down so much for another. Sounds familiar? In fact, in Philippians 2, we know this almost as memory verses. In fact, many of you have memorized it. Philippians 2, verses 4 to 8. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Those are his rights. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This idea that Christ himself did not hold to his rights, to who he was, to what he deserved, he is the son of God. And he put it all aside so that what's coming from the father might flow through him to us might this new year's be the beginning of a time where we're focused that that same love would continue to flow through us rather than us collecting all of our rights and becoming a block for everything passing through. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ did this very thing. When we talk about it, this simple idea of going, yeah, some people might not be able to eat food off her dietals. Therefore, I may choose not to eat that in front of them when I'm around them, that I might sacrifice some of my rights for others, that the gospel might flow through me. If there's any resolution you have this year, I would encourage you that at a church where our mission statement says that we are united in sacrifice, How cool would it be that this church, this body of believers would be known by nothing more than the fact that we lay it down for others, that we give it up for others, that this year, if I had a resolution, it would be that I might be known as one that would always serve others, that would sacrifice for self, because in it is the picture of the gospel. It's the picture of who Jesus is. That's it. Take care that these rights of yours do not become a stumbling block. Instead, that we might be just simply a channel that the gospel flows through to those who desperately need to hear about Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your love. And Lord, even as we go through these thoughts and these ideas, it's not a new idea, it's not a new concept, but Lord, I know that for me, it's a very important reminder that sometimes I settle into my rights. I get comfortable with what is due me, what I think I deserve. And yet, Lord, I really do care about others more importantly than me. Lord, that this church would continue to be known as a church that is indeed united in sacrifice, that much like you, we lay it all aside for the sake of the gospel. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.